Welcome to Pod Academy. My name is Rachel Jolly and I'm here in Paris to interview Anu Palmer Srinivasan, director of the gender research group Prajnya, based in Chennai in India. Anu Palmer has spent the last year carrying out research across South Asia into gender violence. Could you talk me through the motivation for doing this research project? I think the starting point for this was really that gender and sexual violence remains a really under-researched area. It kind of tends to fall into many different categories. So you'll see some work on it in under the sort of label of human rights. You'll see some work on it under the label of um, you know women's issues. But as a result, what that means is different people take or abdicate responsibility for it. So it's sort of, you know, everyone's problem and no one's in a sense. So I think the starting point really was, what is the big picture? And what is the kind of evidence we have to back up this statement that we make very often, that gender and sexual violence is highly prevalent in South Asia? We say this all the time, and we say it with a fair amount of confidence, but what are the numbers behind it? How do they correlate with the anecdotal evidence that is is more publicly visible, whether through newspaper reports or documentary films? And who are all the different players on this scene? What are their roles? What are their responsibilities? And what are their motivations? I happen to see, I think, this call for proposals from a group called the Global Consortium on Security Transformation, that was interested in looking at different security, human security issues. And uh, I think it was important for me to be able to place this issue of gender and sexual violence within the idea of security. Um, Traditionally, you tend to look at security as, you know, military security, national security. But there is also, I mean, the idea, obviously, of looking at it as a human security, health security, all of these different issues. So what were the sources of material that you looked at when you were gathering evidence on this? Two kinds of sources. Um, one was obviously the existing literature on um, that was both country-specific and specific to certain forms of violence. Um, as you know, gender violence um, is a very sort of broad label, and you can and must break it up to look at really very specific forms of violence, um, whether defined by where it takes place or defined by the degree of violence itself. So the literature was really one, obviously, main starting point. The other was actually doing in-depth qualitative interviews with a range of people who have many years of experience working on this issue. I did also travel to um, Sri Lanka to do interviews there as well. Unfortunately, there was no real budget provision to travel to the other South Asian countries. Obviously, that would have been ideal. Mm-hmm. And um, I think one of the challenges was really um, in, one, identifying the right people to speak to and, two, getting access to them. Um, we make, I think, assumptions about the levels of internet access sometimes. And um, I did find that particularly challenging um, with Nepal and Bangladesh. And I think those do remain gaps in this research to a certain extent. And 
You say in your introduction that uh, gender violence remains invisible and shrouded in silence in every country in South Asia. What are the factors that, that makes that true? I think what has pretty much always been true, that um, someone who experiences violence is either scared, ashamed, embarrassed, or a combination of all of these things to talk about it. Obviously, that goes with the fact that as society, we don't really encourage or create the kind of public platforms or spaces that enable this kind of conversation. Um, whether it's one-on-one, you know, accessing, say, a mental health professional still remains a big stumbling block. So, and one of the things we always say when we work on this issue is what we know is really the tip of the tip of the iceberg. That's pretty much become an assumption now, I think that we know more because we have more legislations and um, we have been, I think many countries have been trying to work with police forces to um, sensitize them a little more on how to respond. What are the things you say and what are the things you don't say Mm -hmm. when someone comes to file a complaint? And I think that has made a difference in terms of the number of um, people who have experienced violence who are willing to come up and talk about it. But I, I still believe that it's, you know, really a minority and there are many more stories that we don't hear at all. Mm-hmm. And you also looked at security of women in private and public spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, the private spaces, one would assume as an outsider, would be more difficult to assess. And I think um, in the private spaces, you you pretty much have to wait for someone to file a complaint. And you're talking about people's homes generally. People's homes generally. Um, If there's either, you know, one-off incidents or chronic abuse over many years. Um, And this is always a dilemma, you know, how how far can you go in encouraging slash convincing someone that they must report an incident of violence? What are the kinds of consequences for their own lives, for their personal lives, for their for how everyone else views them. And uh, I think this is a harder question for service providers, for people who run helplines and charities and shelters, for instance. Um, And I think with private spaces, um, the role of the state is also a tricky question. Um, You know, how far do you go in enforcing nonviolence in a home, for instance? Whereas in a public space, if you saw someone assault a woman um, on the train, for instance, I think we can safely assume that many of us would think it is the right thing to step in at that point and say this is not done. So um, the lines are quite blurred, I think, and um, it's it's a tricky question that we really don't have the answers to. I just wanted to ask you about some of the specific areas that you looked into. So one of them is dowry harassment. Can you... Mm -hmm. Talk us through what that actually is. In many countries in South Asia, but specifically in India a lot, um, the tradition is that when a girl is married into another family, her father has to provide what is called a dowry, which um, could be money, which could be jewellery, which could be Um, You know, it could even be electronic equipment. It could be furnishing a house or it could be a combination of all of these things. The idea is that you are handing over your daughter and you're also sort of saying, look, take care of her, but use all of this to take care of her. 
And it's interesting because it actually came, it's sort of now gone into this whole idea of a bride price almost. So what is the price of a bride and therefore her relative worth? So one of the things that India has done is to pass a fairly strong anti-dowry legislation. So dowry is illegal. The taking of dowry is especially illegal. But in reality, we know that it happens all the time. And it happens fairly openly, I think. Um, If you walk into 20 marriage halls, I think you'd find a fair number of very proud fathers telling you what kind of uh, dowry they were able to put together and how many years they had to work to put that together. And, you know, it's a proud moment for them. Um, It comes with the baggage that the value of the woman about to be married off is really determined so much, not so much by, you know, whether people like her or even how much she might have studied or the kind of job she has, but really by uh, by the worth of this dowry. Okay. And so what? where's the harassment level? Um, some of it is before marriage, which is obviously easier to deal with because there is still a point at which you can turn back and say, uh, all right, I'm not going to go ahead with this. And we have seen stories of women um, who have publicly declared on the day of the wedding even that they're not going to allow their families to be subject to this kind of harassment. So there's a sort of pre-marriage negotiation that takes place sort of behind the scenes, you know, behind all the shopping for the jewellery and the saris and all of that nice vibrant stuff that you see. Um, After marriage, it often tends to become a lot more secretive uh, and confined to within um, a woman's new household, in a sense. So this could just take the place of verbal abuse every day of, you know, say a father has promised that in the 10 days after a marriage, he would bring over X extra amount Mm -hmm. um, because they didn't feel it was adequate and say he's not been able to put that together. So I think it's safe to assume that the young uh, woman would face a fair amount of, to begin with, verbal abuse, which could, depending on obviously circumstances, go right up to what we call dowry debts, uh, which could mean bride burning, you know, where you have these curious um, accidents in kitchens and you have stars exploding and by coincidence, the new bride just happened to be sitting there. And then when you see one, yes, you know, it's tragic. And then you see 10 and then you see 100 and you, you, you'd be pretty foolish not to notice the pattern there. Since the legislation was passed in India, the number of dowry deaths I won't say has drastically come down, but hasn't drastically gone up either, because there is there is some amount of fear about the possible legal repercussions. Right. Have there been uh, legal cases? Yeah, taken? Yeah. yeah, quite a few. Um, quite a few cases filed by, very often the girl herself, who's just said, you know, enough is enough, this is ridiculous. Um, I'm not going to do this to either myself or very often my father or my family. There have been cases of women walking out of their marriages, say, a week or 10 days after the actual wedding. And obviously that is so much harder, both legally, um, emotionally, um, in in terms of how uh, society views that, especially if you've had a large wedding with, you know, 2,000 people attending it. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned the legislation in India, and we've talked about that in the context of India. Does this go on around South Asia, outside India? 
Um, it does in the Maldives, for instance, um, and to a lesser degree, I think, in um, from what I do know in Pakistan and Bangladesh. I think Nepal, again, it is quite high. Uh, the whole idea of a bride price is quite high in Nepal. Um, but I think I, I can sort of say that um, it is most prevalent to some extent in India. And is India the only country that's actually got legislation in place? To no, I think Nepal has the legislation as well. Um, the, the curious thing is that a lot of the dowry legislation tends to be included in broader, say, domestic violence um, legislation. So, for instance, if you have a husband beating the wife, the reasons for that are many. And one of those could be dowry. So um, I think having a unique legislation just on, on dowry is one thing. But I think in many countries, the assumption is that if you can report someone for abuse, irrespective of what the reason might actually be, even if dowry is one of those reasons. Acid, acid burning comes up as um, another example. Um, acid attacks are fairly... They m- most peculiar to, I would say, Bangladesh and a little bit in India and Pakistan as well. Um, The idea being that, say you have um, a spurned lover or you have a a young man who isn't being allowed to marry a girl because, you know, her family has found someone else for her who they deem more worthy, more suitable, or the girl herself has rejected his, um, let's say, advances, for lack of another word, So what very often happens is um, it's easy to find acid, to procure acid, easier than it should be. And it's the easiest thing to have acid in, say, a plastic water bottle, Uh, walk up to someone and throw it in their face, which is literally how these happen. So these 10 acid attacks tend to take place in very public spaces. And obviously they have serious long-term consequences, uh, both in terms of the actual physical scarring. And the idea, I think, also comes from, you know, if I can't have this girl and if I can't marry her and if she doesn't want me, I'm not going to let anyone else have her. If I can disfigure her in this manner, the chances of her being able to lead a happy life, find somebody else to live with, are quite low. And, And quite, I mean, horribly, that is true. A lot of women who have been attacked with acid Um, have to undergo years of physical therapy, of emotional, um, of dealing with that that guilt almost, I think. You know, what did I do? I must have done something really bad to actually have this happen to me. And again, you must find it really difficult to get good statistics on these kind of attacks. That's the curious thing, because acid attacks take place in public, but that doesn't necessarily mean that a case is filed in... Um, you know, uh, in a police station. Often a family may choose not to do so because they don't want to complicate an already difficult situation. And I think there's also a fear of, you know, further repercussions. So say they have, um, this has happened to an older daughter in the family and they have two younger daughters. I think their first fear would be, what's to stop the guy who's being out on, you know, been let out on bail, come back and do this again. And um, this is not, you know, short of, uh, confining someone in a home, you how do you prevent this kind of violence? In Bangladesh, for instance, after they passed um, this uh, bill, they did this act, they did find that the number of acid attacks went down quite drastically. And this was a very strong legislation and 
right up to actually saying death penalty. I don't think anyone has actually been awarded the death penalty, given the death penalty. But the fact that you have deemed this a crime that is so serious and setting aside the whole debate about death penalties, I think just recognizing it as such a severe crime has meant that they have found that acid attacks have come down in the years since the legislation. Yeah, in your report you say the number went down from 490 in 2002 to 179. That's a significant drop. That is. But that is again one of the gaps I think I've referred to, that while we know in terms of sheer numbers that there's the gap, we don't really have the kind of analysis that can attribute this solely to the legislation. We can infer from this and from the timing of this that, you know, the legislation is likely to be a strong reason for this. But unless we actually go back and do more um, sort of a more in-depth um, study of this, we I don't think we can very confidently say it is only because of legislation and therefore that if you pass legislation against all the different forms of violence, we will be able to bring them down. You mentioned that there has been research looking at links between women's participation in earning money and, uh, and violence in society against women, but it's not as clear as showing there is um, a positive sign. I mean, there's, there's research either way, is that right? Yes, because we tend to assume that if a woman has um, one access to education, to access to a good job and um, therefore livelihood and a certain amount of independence, it means that she is less vulnerable to violence and she is more likely to have the right set of skills to protect herself or, you know, or to seek justice even. But I think there have been some studies that have shown that the correlation isn't quite as strong as we like to think there is. That's obviously a little worrying, I'd even say, because it it sort of goes against the whole, the broad notions of empowerment as we see it. And this idea that all of these different factors, um, education, employment, um, income, independence, contribute to stronger women, really. Um, again, it's really, I think it's sort of very basic research that has been done, and it's something that we really need to explore a lot more to understand. Uh, the same thing, you kind of see the same pattern with land ownership, uh, I think. Um, a study done by the International Center for Research and Women um, has shown that women who own land in more sort of matriarchal societies aren't necessarily any less vulnerable to violence than you would assume. That because they have the land as an asset, does that give them greater uh, you know, security in that sense? So in this study, did, did you come across legislation or uh, programs that were being introduced in a particular country that other countries within South Asia could learn from? I think the one thing, um, I'm not so sure about specific legislation, um, whereas, although, to be fair, both India and Sri Lanka um, introduced the domestic violence legislation, uh, I think, in the same year, and there was quite a bit of sort of sharing of, you know, where we come from, where we stand on this issue. Um, and I think if you look at both the legislations, there are quite a few um, commonalities between them. But the one thing that I did find that personally continues to bother me is, and this is true within a country as well, is a, is a reluctance to actually share the work you've done. And I find that very problematic because 
in a small country, I'd walk into the office of one um, organization that would tell me they've done this, that and the other. And that's good work. And I'm, I'm delighted they've done that. And then they would go on to say, but no one else has done anything on this. And then you move to, you know, two streets down to the next organization. They would tell you exactly the same thing. And I honestly just don't get that because surely you want to share the work you've done and you want other people to find out about it. And you don't want to be doing the same things that everyone else is doing because what's the value add necessarily? Mm. You are just continuing, you know, continually just uh, pretty much reinventing the same thing and coming up with the same numbers. Whereas if you actually identified a legitimate gap and focused your energies on that gap, I think you'd be a lot more, it would be a lot more useful. I did pose this question to a few people and the, I think, very honest response I got was that you are driven by funders to a large extent and by, you know, what is perceived um, globally as the biggest problem or what is the, what is the one issue that everyone wants to invest money in? So say, for instance, you know, in the last couple of years, there's been quite a big uh, a lot of talk about honor killings in Pakistan and in India. So for an organization, that would be a smart thing to write up a grant request for. Never mind if all 10 organizations are doing the same thing. In Sri Lanka, after the tsunami, there was a lot of work about you know post-disaster violence and mm-hmm. violence in camps. Now that the conflict has ended in Sri Lanka, there is um, a lot of ongoing work and important work, I think, on what were the kind of long-term violence, uh, both from the state, from other military groups that women faced. But I think I think the problem is these tend to happen in phases and cycles, and they all come at the same time. And then what do they add up to? That's, I think, really the question we need to ask ourselves. That sounds like one of the, the things that you can learn from this kind of project. Is there any other lessons going forward, you think, or massive gaps that you can see need to be filled? Um, I think the one other big question that really I'm you know, still looking for um, an answer to is the question of whose responsibility this is. Obviously, data collection and research on a massive issue like this, on, an, um, on a tricky, difficult, ethically difficult issue like this, um, can't be one person's responsibility. So who's that going to be? Is it going to be civil society? Is it going to be non-profit groups? Is it going to be the government? In my ideal world, every government would be able to set up an accessible, transparent database uh, of the different forms of um, crimes or violence against women or, or gender violence for that matter. Uh, that obviously respects you know, privacy and, and all the different ethical issues that go with it. And you would sort of back this up with qualitative research that filled the gaps. But I think this is pretty much a pipe dream, really. And because um, this would call for for big financial investment, for sustained financial investment. You know, to give you an example, 3,484 women were raped in India in 1999. Uh, we don't know any more than that. We don't know who the rapists were. We don't know where it took place. So how do we put in place any kind of, um, um, you know, security measures? How do we know how many took place, how many were perpetrated by strangers, how many were by people known to them? So I think unless we're able to break down these numbers into into other correlates, really, 
uh, we're sort of going to be going round and round in you know the same ways. for listening don't forget there's a transcript of this podcast and others as well as further notes and links on the pod academy website